baptized as you are able and receive this reading from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, we know that you hold us and the whole world so tenderly and lovingly. And we give you thanks that we know we, we live and move and have our very being in you. In this moment, O oh God, help us feel that you are holding us. I pray, O oh God, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable to you. For you, God, are our strength. You are our hope and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The writer of the Gospel of Mark packs a lot into this one sentence. In this one sentence, we learn that John the prophet and baptizer has been arrested. We learn that Jesus left his 40-day wilderness test and returned to Galilee with good news of God on his lips. What was this good news? The long-awaited time of God's visitation is happening God's kingdom has come near, a kingdom more powerful than the mighty Roman Empire, more powerful than that empire, than all empires, and opposing all empires that thrive by violence and control and greed and oppression. The kingdom of God is good news for the poor and the outcast, for all suffering under the boot of oppressive powers. The good news of God's realm is opportunity to repent, to renounce loyalty or submission to empires of the world and to stop cooperating with systems that claim blessing and dignity and life for some but not for others. The good news of God's realm is opportunity to believe, to have faith 
in a new way of life that is possible through the presence and the grace of God. All of that in one sentence. (laughs) There's a lot going on there. Sometimes when I read the gospel, I get discouraged. After all, it was centuries ago that Jesus returned to Galilee proclaiming this good news and calling people to repent and to live in a new way as citizens of the kingdom of God. And look where we are right now. Empires built on violence, control, greed, and oppression are all over the world. We live in a country in which I imagine most people don't want to believe that we fit that category, but evidence suggests otherwise. I'm not in any way suggesting that that is all there is to America, oppressive empire, but I do grow impatient with the denial revealed when, in moments like those following the January 6th insurrection, people say, this is not who we are. Violence, control, greed, and oppression most certainly are part of our shared history. As one writer notes, quote, anti-democratic violence courses through the veins of American history. From the mob that killed the abolitionist newspaper man Elijah Lovejoy in 1837, to bleeding Kansas in the 1850s, from the Civil War itself to Reconstruction and Redemption, Jim Crow and the destruction of Native American nations in the service of building homesteads for free white people in the American West. As events like January 6th show, it's not just that this is who we have been. It is still part of who we are. And it's discouraging. What is your response to these realities in our world and in our own nation? It's tempting, and frankly only an option for the privileged, to check out, to disconnect from the issues, to deny the realities, to consciously bury our heads in the sand or engage in the magical thinking that it will all work itself out if we just wait long enough. And it's a challenge for all of us, I think, to keep from falling into the place of thinking that it's so big that there's just nothing that we can do. Every so often, I go back to my collection of the writings of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to keep his insights fresh in my mind and as a corrective to my own drift when it comes to the urgency of now. I recently read, for the first time, the posthumously published essay entitled A Testament of Hope. Even in the opening lines of the essay, I was struck by how King's words 
written in 1968, published in 1969, could have been written in 2024. I'm going to share some of his words with you. He writes, Why is the issue of equality still so far from solution in America, a nation that professes itself to be democratic, inventive, hospitable to new ideas, rich, productive, and awesomely powerful? The problem is so tenacious because, despite its virtues and attributes, America is deeply racist and its democracy is flawed both economically and socially. Today's problems, he says, are so acute because the tragic evasions and defaults of several centuries have accumulated to disaster proportions. The nation waited until black people were explosive with fury before stirring itself even to partial concern. Confronted now with the interrelated problems of war, inflation, urban decay, white backlash, and a climate of violence, it is now forced to address itself to race relations and poverty present among all races. And it is tragically unprepared. What might once have been a series of separate problems now merge into a social crisis of almost stupefying complexity. He goes on. If we look honestly at the realities of our national life, it is clear that we are not marching forward. We are groping and stumbling. We are divided and confused. Our moral values and our spiritual confidence sink even as our material wealth ascends. In these trying circumstances, the black revolution is much more than a struggle for the rights of black people. It is forcing America to face all its interrelated flaws. Racism, poverty, militarism, and materialism. It is exposing evils that are rooted deeply in the whole structure of our society. It reveals systemic rather than superficial flaws and suggests that radical reconstruction of society itself is the real issue to be faced. End quote. The systemic flaws in our society have been painfully revealed again over these past years. In everything from rising poverty rates, an unjust justice system, unchecked military spending, the rise of hate groups, disparities of impact from disease and disaster upon communities of color and upon the poor, and the swift backlash of aggressive white supremacy and white Christian nationalism to things like the election of our nation's first black president, 
the Black Lives Matter movement, the 1619 Project, the flash of protests following the murder of George Floyd, and the immigration crisis. And if the issues were stupefyingly complex in 1968, how much more so are they now? Some of you may have seen and read the opinion piece in the Washington Post this past week by Michelle Norris. She writes this, that following the election of Barack Obama to the presidency, when everyone was talking about and wishing for and hoping for a post-racial reality. She says, far from that hoped-for post-racial state in which race no longer mattered and racial hierarchies were a thing of the past, Obama's election marked not the end of racial anxiety, but rather the beginning of a new chapter, a thorny new chapter in American history, where the subject of race would be ever more complex. Race is still a tender bruise, she writes, on our body politic. And if anything, the rise of a black president and the tanning of America through rapid demographic shifts only intensified the throb. In 2010, Michelle Norris started something called the Race Card Project, which began with her uh, creating these black postcards, and on one side it had a return address. On the front of the card, it had these words, race, period, your thoughts, six words, please send. She left these postcards all over the place in public settings, anywhere she went, anywhere she could stick them in a book or wherever. And she didn't have any idea if anyone would ever send one back. And lo and behold, she began to be flooded by these postcards coming back to her with six words. And she responds and reflects on this work in her opinion piece in the Post. She writes, this work has been full of surprises for me, as a black woman conducting an exercise about race, I thought the vast majority of participants would be people of color, and African Americans in particular. But in most of the 14 years that I've been doing this work, the majority of the six-word submissions have come from white Americans of all backgrounds, conservative, liberal, libertarian, left field, and a lot of people who traditionally feel left out of conversations about race. Their stories about the most personal of things, about marriage, renewal, fear, resentment, rejection, frustration, speaking with an accent, or living with a memory that aches like a bad tooth, are what have given this project its power and momentum. And then she says, trust me, I understand that a lot of people are sick and tired of conversations about race and identity. But to me, it seems as if America is worn out by a conversation that it has never fully had. The rush to the finish line is understandable, but the folly in that is obvious. When people talk about the elephant in the room, the idea is that an invisible beast is sitting silently in some corner. 
In matters of race, it's more like that hulking creature is hungry and cranky and careening through the American landscape, uprooting lives and upending our pretensions that ignoring a poisonous problem will allow it to simply fade away. End quote. For us as people of faith, it's not an option to ignore the interrelated flaws in our society or the particular issues of race and identity. It's not enough to express moral outrage or only show up for the race conversation in the wake of a tragedy like George Floyd. Because the issues at stake are issues of justice, of care, of liberation, and of peace. They're not issues separate from our lives of faith, but are central to our call to sacred resistance. So here at Foundry, we have continued to build day by day, year by year, capacity and resources, policies and practices, to both make space for conversation, to create meaningful change in the lives of our people and in the life of our congregation. This space is our practice ground, our school for living, so that we can go into the world to live the way Jesus calls us to live. This is ongoing work among us. Most recently with Uh, Ana Jelsi Velasco Sanchez, who came among us offering interlocking justice trainings, working with a cohort of Foundry members through an entire year, meeting with the board and the staff, creating a workshop for members of this congregation who felt called to participate. Our goal is to employ the practices of interlocking justice at all levels of our shared life. And as Miss Natalie said to the children earlier, that sort of work doesn't just happen, and it doesn't show up today. It's ongoing, it takes a long time, and it takes hard work. We're committed to this work. Norris was asked what her six words on race were, and she said that after 14 years of curating the Race Card Project, that her words were these, still more work to be done. Lord knows that that is true for Foundry Church as well, but we are committed to do it. When I get discouraged about how long the moral arc of the universe is, I try to remember that Jesus proclaimed the good news in a time like our own, in a context like our own. The poor were neglected, and weapons were idolized, and injustice and greed were rampant, and prophets were jailed and killed. And yet the good news then was, was good news. <laughs> it's good because it's so needed because it reveals God at work in a new way, because it promises that God won't abandon us in our brokenness, but will draw near in human flesh to make new life possible. Because Holy Spirit will and has continued to fall afresh upon people all over the world and to lift up prophets who will call people to repent and to believe in the good news of God's kingdom. 
The good news is good news. Holy Spirit lifted up Martin Luther King Jr., whose words from the essay written the year he died remind us of that good news when he says this, quote, People are often surprised to learn that I am an optimist. They know how often I've been jailed, how frequently the days and nights have been filled with frustration and sorrow, how bitter and dangerous are my adversaries. They expect these experiences to harden me into a grim and desperate man. They fail, however, to perceive the sense of affirmation generated by the challenge of embracing struggle and surmounting obstacles. They have no comprehension of the strength that comes from faith in God and in humanity. It is possible for me to falter, but I am profoundly secure in my knowledge that God loves us. God has not worked out a design for our failure. Humanity has the capacity to do right as well as wrong. And human history is a path upward, not downward. The past is strewn with the ruins of the empires of tyranny, and each is a monument not merely to humanity's blunders, but to our capacity to overcome them. In these words, we're reminded of the freedom and the power that God gives us to engage in sacred resistance against all that is evil, unjust, and oppressive. We are given strength to grab the moral arc of the universe and help bend it in the right direction. We have the capacity, by God's grace, to do right, to embrace struggle rather than evade it, and to work together to surmount obstacles. In our gospel text, Jesus calls the first disciples fisher folk. He calls them to him. He calls them to live the kingdom of God. And part of what that means is that they had to leave their nets behind. What nets do you need to leave behind to respond to Jesus' call to work alongside others in this long, hard work of building the kingdom? I wonder what words or ideas have been mentioned today that ensnare you in a net that feels uncomfortable or painful. I wonder what safety net you notice yourself drawing up around you. I wonder what net you want to release so that you can get free to live more closely with Jesus. Jesus calls you to repent and have faith in God's love and in God's design for human life together. Can you turn away from the nets that hold you back? Will you repent and believe the good news 